Father, just as we sung, many of us are in distress. Many of us are confused because we can't seem to put life together. We can't seem to keep the blocks stacked on, one of, on top of one another without something or someone knocking them down. We're confused. We're perplexed. Others of us are on the top of the world. We're achieving. We've accomplished what we've wanted to in life or just this week. Lord, others are still searching. Others are looking for answers. And we're here maybe because we've been invited, maybe because we've been coerced. But, Father, wherever we find ourselves this morning, would you find us? Would you find us with the gospel? Would you move into our hearts with its power, with its scope, and with its content, with what it says about who we are and what it says about who you are, and that it says that to know the truth is to be set free? Father, would you set us free this morning? Father, be with the one who speaks, for certainly he needs it as much as anyone. But, Father, would you use my words to instruct us all? Would you pray? And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Historians have used the 95 Theses as a convenient placeholder for the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And it's convenient, it's not necessarily the beginning of the Reformation. And Martin Luther said it's not even the most pivotal point in his life. He says there's another event altogether in his life that is the most pivotal, most life-changing, most significant event for him. And it's what historians have called the Tower Experience, when he was studying this very passage. And he was struggling with this idea that as a monk, he knew he didn't have the righteousness of God, that he couldn't stand before God and be approved of. And he came across this passage over and over, and he knew this was what unlocked the whole book of Romans. And that's what scholars even today say. If you want to know and understand the book of Romans, you've got to start here with verses 16 and 17. But the righteousness of God being revealed terrified him. Because though he was a monk, though he was devoted, though he prayed daily and nightly, publicly and privately, though he was a doctor of theology, he taught theology. He preached regularly, sometimes over 150 times in a year. When he read the righteousness of God, he was utterly terrified. He trembled before what that meant. Now, what is the tower experience? The tower experience is him changing his understanding of what the righteousness of God was. And he was day and night, he says in his journals, meditating over this passage in the black cloister at Wittenberg. And he says he began to, the light began to break in. That he had desperately tried to keep the law in order to be righteousness. But over and over and over, even this holy, outwardly holy monk knew that he was an utter failure. And he came to this passage and says, what do I do? What am I left with? If the righteousness of God, that is his holiness, his otherness, his absolute purity, his justice is revealed in the gospel, what do I do? And he says it made him angry with God. This passage says it's about the gospel, what is supposed to be good news. But to Luther, this passage was anything but until he had this tower experience. He thought that the righteousness of God was God's personal righteousness, 
the justice by which he moved into the world and judged unrighteousness. And so, obviously, when he came across the phrase, the righteousness of God in Scripture, he says, it struck my conscience like lightning. He says, it was like a thunderbolt in my heart because he knew that he was an unrighteous sinner. How could he possibly stand before the righteous God? He says that he was even filled with hatred and anger towards God. He says, if God punishes us miserable sinners with the law, why does he also offer punishment in what's supposed to be the gospel too? So how does this passage become gospel? How does this passage become the good news that broke in to Luther's life? How do we see the righteousness of God as good news? as comforting news, as wonderful news for all of us here this morning. Let's look at at the power of the gospel, the scope of the gospel, and the content of the gospel. First of all, power. Power. Paul frequently contrasts in his epistles this idea of mere words, mere professing of faith, mere words with power. And he says that the gospel is not merely an alternative philosophy. It's not merely an alternative ideology or words or worldview, but it's power. That it's power and word brought together because it is the message of God's work, of God's gracious work in the world. That's why it's power, because it's a message. It's a message about God and how he has moved into the world. Paul says here that the gospel is power, not that it points to power, not that it contains power, not that it brings power, but it absolutely is, in its essence, power. What this means is that you and I can't just detachedly or objectively consider the gospel because it's like a live wire. You don't walk up to a live wire and just objectively, by touching it, is this hot? No, because it's power. If you touch a live wire, it kills you, or at least blows you across the room. It's power. And if you're here today, and you are exploring Jesus, if you're analyzing his message, trying to figure out if this is true, can I buy into it, can I be a Christian? I want you to know that you can't do that objectively. You can't just analyze it as if it is a textbook, because it's not. It's power. And I don't say that to make you fearful, but just simply aware. St. Theodore, who wrote in the third century, says that the gospel is like a pepper. That if you touch a pepper on the outside, it can be cool to the touch. Even if you put your tongue on it, it can be relatively benign. But if you bite into a pepper, it can be power, it can be heat, it can make you sweat. Outwardly, it may look rather benign, but inside, when you bite into it, it's power. It's power. And so if you're investigating, please know that what you're investigating is something of great force, of great potency. It is the very power of God. So therefore, it's uncontrollable. It's unmanageable. We can't receive it. We can't investigate it. We can't assimilate it on our own terms because it's the power of God. It's not just a philosophy. It's not just a religious system. It's power. All human nature 
vigorously resists grace, Flannery O'Connor says in her Habit of Being, because grace changes us and the change is painful. We would prefer our philosophical systems, our religious systems, to be relatively (laughs) user-friendly, relatively manageable, something that we can manipulate for our own ends, for our agenda, to make us a better person, to achieve the things that we want to achieve, that we want our ideology relatively benign. But Flannery O'Connor and what the gospel says is you can't do that because grace, because the gospel changes you. You can't just use it for your own benefit. You can't use it to serve your own purposes. It has power. It has two aspects of power. First of all, the power to offend. The gospel has the power to offend. If you remember in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells this story of the publican and the Pharisee. And to basically summarize, you have two guys that come to the temple to worship. And one of them is a person like Luther. He's holy, outwardly holy. He follows the law. He's very religious. He knows the rules and he follows them. And so he brings the rules in his back pocket and says, God, look at this. Look at what I have done. And I am so thankful that I'm not like those other people. I'm not like that sinner over there, the tax collector, the most hated person in the Jewish world because he was the one that massaged the system. He stole both upward, upward and downward. It was one of his own people. He was a Jew, but he stole from the Jews to give to the Romans. He was hated. But this person, this tax collector, comes to the temple and he beats his breast and he won't even look up at God because he is overwhelmed by his unrighteousness. And Jesus says, it is not the Pharisee that goes home to his house justified, it's this person. Why? Because he confessed, I am unrighteous. The Pharisee comes with rules to follow. The gospel offends him because it's too easy. It can't just be this guy beats his breast and says, I'm sorry, God, forgive me, and that's it. Look at what I've done for you, God. Won't you reward me? Won't you commit me? Once you say, well done, it's not what Jesus says. It offends the Pharisee and offends Luther initially because it's too easy. Religion might make people more moral, but it's not power. We can use religion just like anything else to serve our own purposes, to make a name for ourselves, to make ourselves feel better. We can use it to curry favor with God, and to curry favor with others. And that's not power. That's religion. That's moralism. The gospel doesn't make religious people, but it transforms you from the inside out. The gospel doesn't make nice people, but it makes new people. And what Luther understood and what terrified him was that he knew that the most moral person in the room could be the person that was farthest from God. He realized what the Pharisee didn't, that his religion couldn't make him new. It couldn't make him truly righteous. He may stand up pretty well to the person next to him, but he could never stand up before God. The Pharisee had religion, but he didn't have power. It offends us because we think it's too easy. For others of us, it offends us because we think it's too hard. The gospel says we come to God out of weakness, not in strength, out of utter dependency upon God rather than through our own efforts. 
And maybe you say, well, that sounds easy. Why is that hard? It's very hard because what the gospel says is that you must give up your self-sufficiency, that you must give up all the ways that you say, I am important because, I am special because, I am lovely because, I am significant because. Any way that you finish that sentence, you have to give that up as a pathway to God. Those things are our center. Those things become our functional gods. Those things are our meaning makers. And if you're a student, it may be the crowd that you're with. It may be that these people provide you with some sense of significance. I am somebody because I am in this crowd. It may be your ideology. It may be your politics. It may be what channel you listen to. It may be your news source. It may be anything that we look to to say, this is why I'm important. This is why I'm special. I found out last night that it can even be not being a loud talker. (laughs) You know what a loud talker is? The guy that is in the restaurant that just can't talk at a low volume. I was finishing my sermon at a restaurant last night, looking at this passage, writing this sermon, and I'm looking over at this guy who's holding court in this large table, and he's 15 feet away, but everything he says is so loud that it's like it's in my ear. And I found myself thinking, I'm sure I'm glad I'm not like that person. I sure am glad that I'm not a loud talker, that I know that I have social grace, that I can know that not everyone in the restaurant wants him to hold court on issues of politics and world events. You see, we can make anything our center. We can make anything our meaning maker. And it can be something as silly as not being a loud talker, or it can be something much more easy to identify as, I am an achiever. I have got my life together. And these things are not given up easily. That's why the gospel is hard, because it's much easier to find something more manageable, something that we can sink our teeth in, something that is tangible. If our meaning maker is competence, then we become very defensive when we look incompetent in a certain area. If it's approval, then we're crushed when we feel that someone is disappointed in us or disapproves us, and we can't control their opinion, and it makes us angry. It may make us rude. These things are not given up easy because they're much more, they seem to be much more controllable. The gospel is hard, it's too hard, because it's easier to go after approval and achievement, culture, religion, whatever it is, instead of opening ourselves up to the unmanageable power of God. That's hard. We come with weakness. We come with openness. We come with saying, there is nothing that is off limits to you, God. Change me. And that is hard to say. The gospel has the power to offend, either because it's too easy or because it's too hard. But it also says here that it has the power to save. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. One of the ways that it is helpful to learn what a passage says is to look at what are the, how is the word used in other uh, contexts in, in the same letter or in the same author's writing. How does Paul use power elsewhere in Romans? In chapter 1, he talks about the power of God as creative power, that he powerfully created the entire world. And he talks about power with regards to resurrection. The power is that of bringing life out of deadness. 
It is bringing resurrection. It is the power of new creation. And what I've been arguing here and what the gospel argues, what Romans argue, is that all of us are living for something. All of us have functional idols that we're looking at and saying, I want that, I must have that or else. All of us are living for something. But some of us are better at achieving those things. Some of us are better at looking at that goal and saying, I'm going to get there and I will get there. And some of us do get there to some degree. But what each of us have in common is that at the end of each of these pursuits is death. Whatever we're striving for, whether it's a thing, whether it's a person, whether it's an ideal, we're all up against the clock because we're all going to die. It's all going to wash away. Some things sooner. Some things will wash away in the recession. Some things that we're looking to find meaning in, that we're placing as our main focus of life, some things that are meaning makers for us will be washed away in an actual flood. But everything that we're holding up, saying, I am somebody, I matter because, will eventually be washed away. But what God does is bring life where there is deadness. He brings resurrection. He creates something out of nothing. He puts an end to this futile cycle of chasing something to death. He says, do you want to serve ambition? Do you want to serve achievement? Do you want to serve relationships? Are those your meaning makers? Well, you're going to be chasing them to the day you die because they will never provide the meaning, the significance, the joy, the love that you hope they will. Let me put an end to this cycle of chasing something to death. The passage that we read earlier, the gospel, that you shall know the truth and it shall set you free. That you will be liberated from that cycle of death. That salvation, that word, means rescue. It means wholeness. It means soundness. It means a return to wholeness, a return to what God has intended you to be. That's salvation. It's not abstract that he begins as he saves you to change your life, to transform you, to make you new. That's the power that he talks about, the power to recreate, the power to res- resurrect, power of salvation. That's the gospel. It is his power unto Freedom, liberty, resurrection, soundness, wholeness. That's the power. What about the scope? Who is this gospel for? What is the scope of the gospel? It says it's the power of God unto the salvation of everyone. Everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Now what he means when he says, first for the Jew then for the Gentile, is a historical, not an essential priority. It means that the story had to start somewhere. And this story started with Abraham, and then in a tiny nation, an insignificant nation in the Middle East, that he said, I will be your people, and I want to be, I want to love you so that you will love others. And that his saving purposes, that salvation, that gospel is embedded in a specific people in order to be propagated, disseminated out to the whole world. It's for everyone. He lists the, there's only two types of people in the world. There's Jews and Gentiles. And he says it's for everyone. It's for both of those people. But also, so that the gospel is boundless. It's for everyone. But it's also boundaried. 
because he gives us a specific and particular path to righteousness, a specific path unto salvation, and that is faith. That is the trust of Jesus himself and repent of, repentance of self-trust. It's boundless in that everyone is invited, Jew and Gentile, religious and irreligious. The, past, or the song that we sing often in our services, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Anyone who can sing that, anyone that can say that, can come to Jesus and can receive salvation. I come with nothing that you need, God, nothing that I think that I can acquire your love, nothing, but I simply cling to your cross. I simply cling to the, the gospel. It's a gift or it's nothing, but it's a gift that is boundless. But it's also boundary in the sense that we often think that the gospel is foolish. That if we believe this, we won't get what we want. If we believe this, we'll look like fools. And Paul here writing knows that this very status-conscious congregation in Rome, they're at the center of the empire. They're at the center of the world. They're living in New York. They're living in London. They're in the center of the whole world, and they're very status-conscious. And he knows that because this gospel involves folly, It involves weakness that these Romans will have times in their lives where they think, I am utterly ashamed to be a Christian. I'm utterly ashamed of the gospel. And that's why he writes, look, friends, I, Paul, the apostle, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And what he means by this is not primarily uh, that we ought to be more bold at talking about Jesus with our fellow citizens. That's part of it. There's an implication there. But what he's saying primarily, Paul is saying, I am not ashamed of what the gospel says about me. I am not ashamed to be a weak, dependent man. I am not ashamed to be utterly foolish. I am not ashamed to trust in Jesus alone. He's not ashamed of what the gospel says about him, that he's utterly dependent upon God rather than self-sufficient. Where others are seeking to show strength, Where others are posturing themselves as accomplishers, I'm going to posture myself as needy. I'm going to posture myself as utterly helpless except for Jesus, except for the gospel. There's no way, just as Luther knew, there's no way that I can stand before God on my own merit. I'm helpless, but I'm willing to say that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. This was the good news that Luther finally discovered. Because he knew his weakness. He knew his inability. He knew he would sit in his room for hours praying with one of those leather belts that he would hit himself with, punishing himself, because he knew how sinful, how dreadfully sinful he was. So this gospel, this was good news to him. If what gets me in is my weakness, if what gets me in is my inability, then let's celebrate. That's power. That's good news. I can subscribe to that. I am not ashamed of that. I've been saying this all along. I am unrighteous. That was where the gospel broke in. That's the content of the gospel that made Luther jump for joy. He says he he meditated to the very end of the verse 117. The righteous shall live by faith. And what he realized is that this verse is not talking primarily about the righteousness that God possesses, 
the righteousness by which he meets out judgment towards sins. It's not a righteousness of God, but it's a righteousness from God. That it's a righteousness by gift. It is not the righteousness that God demands, but what he gives. And this tower experience that he had in this one passage, it changed his life and really changed all of history, especially for the church. He says, according to to him, he says it was a conversion experience. When he discovered that God gives righteousness as a gift, he felt that he was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. That place in Paul, for me, was truly the gate to paradise. Friends, if we see the righteousness of God only as an attribute of him, then we will stay as far away from him as possible. We'll be fearful, we'll be anxious to come before him, because if he is holy, looking at our lives, there's no way that we can stand before him. But it's not simply an attribute, though that is absolutely true. It's also not just simply an activity by which he brings justice, by which he brings judgment. That would make us fearful as well. But the righteousness of God is also an achievement. It is by the achievement by which he brings salvation, that he brings the free gift of righteousness to be had by anyone. Righteousness, that you can stand before God and he can look upon you and love you fully and still be true to his character, still be true to his holiness, still be true to his purity. You, if you are righteous in Jesus, if you have received that gift, You've received the righteousness of God, and therefore you stand before him not fearful, not anxious, not wondering if he's going to get you, but you stand there as a son or daughter. You stand there in order to be loved, to be embraced, because you possess the righteousness of God. This is what David, in Psalm 51, one of the most famous psalms of confession, after he has committed adultery with Bathsheba, And then out of jealousy, because he wants Bathsheba for himself, he sends Uriah to the front lines while he stays back home in comfort. And Uriah is killed. And then he is confronted by Nathan. And he says, yes, I have done this. Yes, I am a sinner. Yes, God, forgive me. Please come and grant me forgiveness. And what does he do? He praises God for his righteousness because God has granted David the standing of righteousness. He has received God's righteousness, and therefore he is forgiven. The righteousness of God is not just forgiveness. As great as that would be, as amazing as it would be to say, God, the creator of the universe, has forgiven me. He's wiped my slate clean. As amazing as that would be, that's not all. That's not the righteousness. It's not only acquittal. I pronounce you clean, but it is receiving the full embrace, the full favor, the full standing of Jesus, God's Son. And this righteousness comes through faith, not by merit, not by activity, not by what you do, but by saying, God, I need you. I am placing my trust in you alone, and I am distrusting myself as a means of salvation. But interestingly, he says he broke through in hearing it this way. The righteous shall live by faith. 
You see, for Luther, it wasn't something abstract. It wasn't something that he just did and believed and then put on a shelf. He spent almost half his writings talking about the Christian duty. He commented on the Ten Commandments in extensive ways. And we would think, well, why is that? If grace is free, if he received God's righteousness, why would he then talk about the law again? It's because for the very first time he understood how to keep it. For the very first time he understood that the righteousness of God had set him free not to live a lackadaisical life, but a life of, of holiness. That the life he lived did not merit God's favor. He had that fully. He was righteous before God, and therefore, let me figure out how do I begin to live that way? How do I begin to take that law which used to accuse me, which used to be a burden, which used to beat me over the back, but now I love it because it shows me the way to serve God, to serve neighbor, to love God, to worship him fully. You see, he was set free. The righteous shall live by faith, shall live by the gospel. Another way he uses power is in in chapter 15. Paul says, that I pray that you would overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, what he's talking about there is taking what God has done. You are righteous, therefore live that way. I pray that you will overflow with power, that you will come to maturity out of your own power? No, out of the power of the Holy Spirit. It is like the, if you've seen... uh, Museum of Science, especially for kids, some of the hands-on science things that you get their flyers, and they always have the little kid on the front with his hair sticking up, you know, because he's touching this electric globe. And that's what it is, because the power of God doesn't just kind of exist out here. Once you receive it, once you let it come into your heart, then you begin to conduct it. Your hair stands on, on end. The, the power of God is not simply out here what he has done for you, but now it is what he is doing to you and through you, that he is changing you, that the gospel is coursing through your veins. And in a sense, you can't even help it. You touch that globe and your hair stands up. Mine wouldn't, but you touch that globe and some of your hair would stand up. Your magnetic poles have shifted. Because the gospel is not just something out here that's been done in the past, but it's something that God is doing with you and through you every day. Ephesians 1, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly realms. Power. Power to change you. When you say, God, I am stuck. I need you. Send that power. The power that is available is the very same power, Paul says, that raised Jesus from the dead. Do you want to be changed? Do you want to be transformed? Let that power begin to course through you. Begin to give up all of these other meaning makers and say, my meaning maker is Jesus. Begin to give up on a gospel that is just set back there at the very beginning and remember and believe a gospel that is still at work and still changing you. How we talk about the gospel at InTown is it's not just the ABCs. 
It's not just how you get in, but it's the A to Z. It's how you progress. You don't believe the gospel and then become religious. You believe the gospel over and over. You apply it again. When you hit a block, when you hit a roadblock, you say, God, I confess my need of you once again, and I repent of the way in this roadblock that I've been trusting myself. Would you alleviate that? By the power of the Holy Spirit, would you come and help me to convert more deeply? You live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Live by the gospel. When Nelson Mandela emerged out of prison of 27 years and he assumed the presidency of South Africa, he asked that his jailer would assume the stage with him at his inauguration. And then he appointed Archbishop Desmond Tutu um, to do the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, kind of an ominous-sounding commission. But for the next two and a half years, this commission brought stories to light about the atrocities of apartheid. And the rules were simple. If you're a white policeman or a white army officer and you voluntarily faced your accusers, you came and confessed your crime and said, yes, indeed, I, give it, I did it, then you were, your slate was wiped clean. You could not be prosecuted. And a lot of people in South Africa at that time cried foul. That's unjust. There's no punishment. There's no retribution. How can this be just? At one hearing, a policeman named Vandebroek confessed to shooting an 18-year-old boy and then burning his body over a barbecue pit. Eight years later, he said that he returned to the same house and seized the boy's father and took him out to a woodpile, poured gasoline over him, forced the wife to come out. The mom, who had lost her son, now is forced to come out and watch her husband be burned alive. The courtroom... Many years later, as this woman is now elderly, had her first look at the person who had killed her son and her husband and was given a chance to respond. The judge says, what do you want from Mr. Vandebroek? She said that she wanted him to go to the place where they burned her husband's body and gather up the ashes so that he could have a proper burial. His head down, he nodded, okay, I will do that. And then she said... He took all my family away from me, but I still have a lot of love to give. Twice a month, I would like him to spend a day with me so that I can be a mother to him. I would like Mr. Vandenbroek to know that he is forgiven by God and that I forgive him too. I would like to embrace him so that he can know my forgiveness is real. The whole courtroom spontaneously begins singing Amazing Grace as they see this woman forgive the person that had taken her son and her husband from from her in a brutal way. They're singing this song that is written by the former slave trader, the one who took people's humanity away, took their lives away, sold them into slavery. And he writes this song because he has been forgiven, because he has not just had his slate wiped clean, but he has been embraced by God. He has been loved deeply by God in spite of the atrocities of his life. The courtroom begins singing this because what else do you do in a time like that? They sing Amazing Grace, but Mr. Vandenbroek doesn't hear it because he has fainted. He's overwhelmed by the graciousness of this elderly woman. 
Friends, for this woman, the gospel was not something that she just believed at the beginning, at her entryway into Christianity, but it was something that she believed deeply, that she began to say, how does my forgiveness, my full freedom, how does my righteous standing before God apply to this? I'm giving an opportunity here to face my accuser. Does the gospel say anything relevant to this particular moment? It wasn't simply good news to get into the kingdom, but it was good news each and every day. It was something that utterly changed her and continued to do so. She was able to see in this circumstance an uh, an opportunity to live and apply and, in fact, give the gospel one more time. If God forgave me, how could I not forgive? And she did for Vandenbroek what Jesus does in the gospel, not simply forgive but she embraced him. She walked across the courtroom and said, not only do I forgive you, that's theoretical. How how are you supposed to know if I really forgive you? I want to embrace you. I want you to come and let me be a mother to you. I want to give you a new status, a new standing. You're not simply no longer guilty, but you're now a friend. You're now someone that I'm willing to embrace. And she became a mother to him. That's what Jesus does in the gospel. That's what the righteous standing of God is. It's not just simply a slate wiped clean. And it's not just the ominous holiness of God, but it is holiness that is made real. It's righteousness sprung down in the person of Jesus, whereby you, if you are willing, can become righteous eternally and be embraced by God and have a new status forevermore. That's the gospel that transforms lives. Let's pray. Father, we we pray that as we wrestle with this, that we would be true to the text, that we would be true to what the gospel says, that that would give us a new freedom to be honest with others about who we are, that when we are seen to be incompetent, that that's not something that is in contrast with our character, but something that reflects it, to own up to it, to not be ashamed of what the gospel says about us as individuals and as a church. But, Lord, let us also cling to, heartily to the other part of the gospel that says that we have been set free, that we have been made new, that though we are incompetent to secure salvation for ourselves, that you were hyper-competent, that you did what we could not do. Father, let us never lose that trust. Let us repent of our self-trust even today and cling to the gospel again as we leave this time of worship. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.